Genesis chapter 49. We will be looking today at verses 1 to 28. That will be our, our section to take on today. Lord willing, we have two sermons left. In the book of Genesis, after today, and we will be done. As I've said before, our next series will be on the book of Romans. We'll be there for, I don't know how long, a little while. And, um, but before that, uh, one of our other elders, Trey Russell, uh, our associate pastor, is going to, to preach two sermons in between Genesis and Romans on the Great Commission. So I'm really excited to hear Trey, expound on that for us as we think about the mission of God beginning in Genesis and as we see it so explicitly articulated in the book of Romans. So what a great transition between these two uh, majestic books of the Bible. But today we find ourselves still very much in Genesis in chapter 49. Last week, we saw that Jacob adopts Joseph's sons. Joseph has two sons in Egypt before Jacob came to him, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob adopts those two sons of Joseph as his own for the purposes of inheritance. So it's not as though they cease to be Joseph's sons. They still are Joseph's sons. But for the purposes of inheritance in the nation of Israel, they become sons of Jacob, which essentially means that Joseph gets a double portion of the inheritance. And then he gives them this inheritance in the promised land of Canaan with the younger receiving a greater share, a greater inheritance than the older. So the the younger Ephraim receives a greater inheritance than the older Manasseh, contrary to Joseph's expectation and contrary to the custom of that time. I want to return, as we get underway this morning, to a quote that I ended with last time from John Calvin regarding Jacob's faith. I ended the sermon last week, chapter 48, with this quote. So I want to begin again today. I just think it is so good and so fitting for what we see in Jacob with his faith. This is what Calvin says. What is this? Here is a decrepit old man assigning to his grandchildren as a royal patrimony a sixth part of the land that he had entered as a stranger and from which he was now an exile. Who would not have said that he was dealing in fables. I love that quote because if you were an onlooker, it would be ludicrous to see this man in Egypt giving away, parceling out land in Canaan, a place that was never his home, his settled home really to begin with, nor the home of his father, nor the home of his grandfather, and he's in a place that is very much not his home permanently. He's an abominated shepherd living on the outskirts of town. And he's giving away land in Canaan. Who would not have said that he was dealing in fables, Calvin says. But Jacob, we know, is not dealing in fables. But rather in faith. Hebrews 11.21 brings this out. And it's interesting that as Jacob's faith is considered, we've walked with Jacob for a long time. But as Jacob's faith is considered, it's, it's this Chapter 48, we covered last week, that the writer of Hebrews wants to focus in on as as the premier expression of Jacob's faith. And it says there, Hebrews 11, 21, By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Jacob, also known as Israel, Hence the Israelites, those are the descendants of Jacob. So Jacob, or Israel, the grandson of Abraham, knew that God's promises were true. So true that everything God promises, though it be unfathomable, though it be millennia away, it is held by faith as certain now. 
That is what faith does with God's promises. Faith takes hold of God's promises, internalizes them, actualizes them, believes that they are certain right in front of you. Not some mere possibility, but a certainty. And this faith that Jacob had in God's promises would have gone back in his memory to the birth of his father Isaac. Remember, 75 years old, God calls Abraham out of Ur and calls him to a land. He says, I'll show you what land, just go. God shows him the land and at 75 years old with an old barren wife, God tells him he's going to make his descendants as many as the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea, the dust of the earth. And at 100 years old, God gives Abraham a son. Jacob's father, Isaac. This was a promise that God had made to him and made to Sarah. And so Jacob knew that just as his father was born to an elderly barren couple, so too would all the other promises that God had made to his grandfather, his father, and to he himself would come true. God would build his descendants into a great nation. God would bring his descendants out of Egypt And give them the promised land of Canaan. And that's why he, as the great patriarch, is here parceling out the land, giving out inheritances to his sons. Because he knows it will be. And it is with this faith filling the heart of Jacob that he calls all 12 of his sons forward to receive prophecy and blessing here in chapter 49. Which is what we're going to come to This morning. This is a passage that is infused with faith. Every utterance of this chapter is, or of these verses, 1 to 28, are utterances of faith. They will not even begin to come true until 400 years from now. As a prophet, Jacob speaks about the future, verses 1 to 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. What Jacob is telling his sons is a future prophecy. All of this is prophetic in nature. It is looking towards the future. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. So he speaks as a prophet. But also as a patriarch. As a patriarch, he speaks words of blessing. And we've seen this from the beginning. Abraham spoke words of blessing over Isaac. Isaac spoke words of blessing over Jacob. And now we come to that part of the story for Jacob and his sons. The patriarch speaks words of blessing. This is a collective blessing over the future tribes. Look at verse 28. All these... Are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them. As he blessed them. Blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Blessing, blessing, blessing. So we see it's, there are these two parentheses. First we've got what's going to happen in the future. And then we see that this is a collective blessing on the 12 sons. Although some of what we read will be negative. As we'll see in a moment. This is nevertheless a a collective blessing over the future nation. All of this emphasis on blessing. This is something we have to see as we think about this, this passage of Scripture in light of all of Scripture, in light of the whole book of Genesis and in light of the whole Bible. All of this emphasis on blessing at the end of the book brings our minds back where? To the beginning of the book. You remember Genesis 1:28, let us make man in our own image, verse 26. God made man, he made them male and female in his image, he made them. We read in chapter 1 verse 28, which we covered a while ago, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Every blessing, every word of blessing, every instance of blessing that we read about in Genesis is a reverberation of that original blessing in chapter 1, verse 28. 
So when we get a a heaping up of blessings like we do in Genesis 49, our minds have to go back to Eden. They have to go back to the very beginning of humanity, creation. God is bringing humanity back to the garden. This is the point. What we are reading in Genesis 49 is cosmically significant because it is through the vehicle of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his 12 sons, it is through the vehicle of of this people that God will bring humanity back to Eden. You're on that bus if you are a Christian. You're on the bus that is setting out here in Genesis 49. It is... A vehicle, ultimately, that is the one future descendant of Abraham. It is through him that God will bring all of humanity back to blessedness, back to blessing. That's where we're going to get it, through Christ, back to Eden, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I suppose someone could object to spending so much time in Genesis By saying, look, you know, we really need to be in the New Testament. We need to be uh, thinking about uh, uh, the specifics of the gospel. We need to be going through the gospel of, of Mark or going through Acts or going through Ephesians or Romans. And we are going to Romans. But I hope that we'll, we'll see or that we have seen over these last two years that going through Genesis has helped us to see that everything else we read in the Bible, our own story is very much situated in this story, the beginning of human history, the beginning of the history of God's people. God is on a mission to bring blessing back to the seed of Adam and Eve. And that's why we're here this morning. That's why we're worshiping. That's why we're praying. That's why we're singing. That's why we're preaching and listening to preaching. Is because we're on that bus. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 49. Verses 1 to 28. This is God's word, perfect and profitable for his people. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben. Here we go. Each son in turn. Reuben. You are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory be not Joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. 
Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Nephtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. And verse 28 really is the conclusion to this passage. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable, suitable that is, from God himself to him. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and... Ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Maybe this passage to you is just totally puzzling. Uh, There's a lot here that causes us to ask questions, but I hope that at least today you will see the glory of God, see the glory of Christ, and trust Him more deeply and love Him more fervently as a result of our time together today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We have seen chapter after chapter paragraph after paragraph, how even sometimes the most seemingly obscure passages are, are filled with riches for your people who now are living 4,000 years after these events. Over 3,500 years after they were written down by Moses. Father, we are grateful to be recipients of your word. We pray that you would speak to us this morning through it, that you would illuminate it, and that your spirit would convict us, that we would come to a more insightful, more profound understanding of who you are and what you have accomplished throughout history, that that our awe of you would grow, that we would marvel at you, God, That we would see you as so much greater than all the things that our hearts say are great. Father, we pray that you would bind our hearts together as a local church in love. We thank you for each other and we pray that you would guide us as we speak the truth in love to one another. As you build us up into Christ who is the head. As you mature us as a people. And as individuals, as families, we pray for our children as they meet in the back that you would bring regeneration to their hearts today, Lord, that you would save some today as they hear the word of the gospel, the word of the cross, which is folly to those who are perishing, but is wisdom and redemption and power and truth to those who are being saved. We pray for them, Lord, that you would mercifully reach out and touch their hearts We pray for those in here who are unsaved, Lord, that you would regenerate them. We pray that you would build us all up in faith. We pray for those among us who are not able to make it today, that you would be with them even now. Would their hearts be with us, Lord, here? We love you. We pray that you would be glorified and that we would be grown up to know you more and trust you and serve you better. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title for the sermon this morning is simply The Future Tribes. That's what we're dealing with here, The Future Tribes of Israel. And we've basically got three categories. It's a little difficult to try to figure out how to present this material. Think about how to structure it into a sermon. You just go through and 
have, you have 12 sons, 12 points, right? Well, I think there's probably a better way to do this. And actually, it works uh, doing it in order. So what I want to do is have us focus in on three categories as we walk through the text this morning. So the first is the punished. If you guys could put those up for us, the, the, three, the three different categories. There you go. Thank you, guys. First, the punished. Second, the preeminent. And third, the prosperous. So just to give you a little bit of a preview of what, what I'm talking about there. So when we talk about the punished, we're looking at Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. And then we come to the preeminent, and that would be Judah. And then finally, the prosperous would include the remaining brothers with special emphasis on Joseph. So I think we really are able to take these in order in this way. So let's begin first with the punished. Look at verses 3 to 7 again with me. 3 to 7. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. The punished. It is certainly strange to find words like these in a text that is supposed to be about future blessing. These are not what you would expect if you're talking about blessing. And to have so many of these words in so many of these verses and to have all of this at the very front end. It's a little bit surprising, maybe even shocking. The words given to Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are a hard rebuke. They speak of disqualification, curse, and separation. These are words of punishment for grievous acts of sin. So I just want to go through each of them here in turn. So first we have Reuben, the firstborn son of Jacob. And what begins in the mouth of Jacob as a recognition of his dignified position as the firstborn, this quickly goes to his disqualification. So first, I can imagine Reuben is just sitting there listening, rubbing his hands together. I mean, all of this recognition of, of how he's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one, the dignified one, the first of Jacob's might, the first of his virility. And then, crashing down on top of that are these words of disqualification and rebuke, punishment. The context is chapter 35, verse 22. You remember when we went through that? It was, it was almost an incidental remark. It was very brief. But in chapter 35, verse 22, we get a little event recorded. Wasn't little in Jacob's mind. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. This is the concubine, this is the maidservant that Rachel gave to Jacob to produce offspring, offspring through her. To, let me say it this way. To produce offspring on her behalf. So Bilhah is a conduit for offspring for Rachel. We saw this practice in the ancient world. They, uh, the wives of Jacob were adopting these practices very much out of step with God's will. And that's where we get these two maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah. Well, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, the first son of Leah, goes up and has relations with one of Jacob's wives, but a concubine wife. Bilhah. This is an act of defilement. It's an act of incest, of dishonoring his father, of trying to usurp his father's position. Some commentators have remarked that this is a, a way for him to sort of gain succession. Through this depraved act, Reuben showed himself to be, as Jacob says here, unstable as water. 
reckless, wild, impulsive, destructive. The consequence falls on top of him in verse 4. You shall not have preeminence. In other words, Reuben is knocked away from the firstborn position that he occupies. All that was said in verse 3 is toppled over by what we find here at the end of these verses. 1 Chronicles 5, 1-2, which I read last week, comments on this. And it also sets up Judah and Joseph. So as I read this, think forward to Judah and Joseph. This is what it says. Reuben was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's couch, because he defied his father's, defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So we, see, we get a little preview there for what we're going to talk about with Judah and what we're going to talk about with Joseph. But for now, I just want you to see what is said regarding Reuben. And that is that he is knocked off of that place of the firstborn. So that's Reuben. Second, we have Simeon and Levi. And Simeon and Levi are treated together. These are the second and third sons born to Joseph. So we're still talking Leah's sons here. The context for this is chapter 34. Maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. But in chapter 34, we read how the full sister of Simeon and Levi was raped by a man named Shechem. Shechem is a prince of the land of Shechem, this land in Canaan. And Dina had gone out to mingle with the ladies there. And Shechem had taken her by force and raped her. Then Shechem had the audacity to go to her father and her brothers and ask for her hand in marriage. In a a very curt way even, uh, he sends his dad to go and say, look, my son wants your daughter. What, what, What do I need to do to get her? Well, this act receives A vicious response on the part of these two full brothers, Simeon and Levi. Their response was to trick the entire male population into getting circumcised. If you'll be circumcised and all the males here, then we'll give you our sister and we'll intermarry with you. And of course, they do it. Every male in the entire city is circumcised. And as they are healing up, incapacitated because of of the circumcision procedure... You can imagine. Simeon and Levi go through the entire city and massacre every single male. It's a bloodbath. Violence, anger, killing, pleasure, willfulness. That's what is intended when when Jacob says willfulness was there. They, They took pleasure in killing all of those people. Willfulness, fierce, wrath, cruelty. This is the language Jacob uses to describe their horrific vengeance against this entire city. This total disregard for life. It's interesting here that Jacob even mentions the fact that they hamstrung or made lame the oxen that belonged to the people. This is a total disregard for life, for human life, and for animal life. Upon killing all of the men, they decide we're also going to make lame, cut the hamstring of all of the oxen. Why? Just so. Because we're angry. We hate this people. We'll show them they're dead. We might as well destroy their animals. Make them suffer too. The consequence... They are rebuked rather than embraced by their father. He disavows them. Their anger invites a curse. And then at the end of verse 7, he says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And what we find historically is that Simeon's tribal allotment will basically be swallowed up by Judah's allotment. And Levi's descendants will not receive land allotments because they will be responsible 
for the priesthood. And that may make you wonder, well, how in the world is that a kind of dispersion or, or, or a dividing that they would actually be brought into the priesthood? That doesn't really make sense. But what commentators have said here is that this is an honorable dispersion. It's a gracious dispersion. They don't receive land allotments, just as Simeon's land allotment is swallowed up. But they are given responsibility for the priesthood. So what are we to draw out of all of this? What are we to take from this before we move on to the preeminent? Really the highlight of this text. Well, I want to give you a couple things. First, consider this. We know this. But we need to be reminded of it. And today is an opportunity to be reminded of it. It's a simple truth. And it's this. Sin brings real consequences. Even for the people of God. Sin brings real consequences. Some of which will not be removed. In this life. And to make it worse. Sin. Brings real consequences. On our offspring. The sins that we. Allow to just. Sit in us. The sins that we allow to. Perpetuate in our lives. They are not without effect. And they are not without effect. For decades And centuries to come. In this case, many centuries. Even millennia. Do you recognize that? As you come to the Bible. As you come to consider a holy God. Remember what Peter says. You call him father? Yes. But he is also judge. And he is a judge over sin. God hates sin. And what it means to belong to God is to also hate sin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate sin. Proverbs says, not to entertain sin. So let today, let this moment be a time of turning for you. Brother, sister in Christ. Let this be a time of turning for you today as you see in Reuben and Simeon and Levi, hopefully not a mirror of perpetuated sin in your own life that will bring consequences on your children and your children's children and on their children many years to come. But for all of us, we recognize That in light of our sin, our multifaceted, deep sinfulness, we run to Christ. Just as Craig prayed earlier. That even now, the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings, as we we bring this to the forefront of our minds, is a conviction that leads us to the cross. It's a conviction that leads us towards consolation in Christ, in his wounds, in his blood. Not self-pity. Or needless, vain guilt, but to the Christ of the cross. Here's another thing we learned from this. God is gracious to sinners. Even in the face of great sin. I want you to notice something here about Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. They are not cast aside. Do you see that? They remain with the nation. Jacob doesn't give them a big boot and kick them out. They are still part of God's people. Levi is given the honor of the priesthood, as I said before. Though they do not themselves receive words of blessing, they are enveloped by the blessings of the family. They remain the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they are in covenant with God despite their sins. That is a gracious God. That is a God who meets us even in grievous sin. Have you discovered the grace, the free gift through Christ of forgiveness that comes from these gracious hands, from this gracious heart of our Lord? And the means of this grace comes from the tribe of the next son. So now we need to turn to the preeminent, our second point for today, the preeminent. Look at verses 8 to 12. 
So we see the punished. Now we come to the preeminent. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Stark contrast here from the previous ones. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What in the world is going on here? Like his brothers, we have watched Judah stumble along in his sin, right? Assimilating with the Canaanites treating his daughter-in-law Tamar unjustly, and even sleeping with what he thinks is a not just a prostitute, but a cult prostitute. We have certainly seen the sins of Judah. Yet we cannot run from the electing grace of God. Gracious all the more when it comes to men like Judah. We have seen The grace of repentance that God has worked in Judah's heart. Remember his response to Tamar. Chapter 38, verse 26. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. I won't go back through and explain that, but he treats her unjustly initially. And then later he realizes his sin and he repents of it. Then we see his willingness to serve as a substitute for Benjamin. Chapter 44, verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Benjamin is found with a silver cup. Joseph, who the brothers think is just the ruler of the land, says, I'll just take Benjamin. The rest of you can go back. And Judah puts himself forward on behalf of his brother for the sake of his father. He puts himself forward and he says, no, 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 no. I will stay here enslaved for the rest of my life. Just let Benjamin go back home with the other brothers to my father. The moment that brings weeping to Joseph as he reveals himself to his brothers and tells them, it's, it's me, it's your brother. All along it's been me. Incredible moment. But an incredible moment. Reflecting the heart of Judah. What God by his grace had done in the heart of this man. Throughout the Joseph story we have watched Judah move to the place of leadership. And now we learn that all of this has been pointing to the future of Judah's tribe. Now that his three older brothers have been pushed to the side. Judah is given the place of dominance. Going off of his name, which sounds like praise, Judah will enjoy the praise and submission of his other brothers. He will have victory over his enemies. His hand will be upon the neck of his enemies. Look at the way he is described like a young, vigorous lion. You read lion cub and you think, you know, cute, small. No, no, it's, it's not a cub. It's, it's a young lion. Filled with energy, filled with power, vigorous. He will rise up from devouring his prey. And like a lion or a lioness, no one will be able to rouse him. You don't walk up to a lion or a lioness and poke it and prod it. Make it do what you want. You get away. You hope it's in a cage. You don't want to be near it. Strength. Fierceness, dominance, praise, preeminence. This is what's in view for the tribe of Judah. But then we come to verse 10. Now listen to this very closely. Now we come to verse 10 and added to all that we've seen so far. The imagery of the young lion, the imagery of the lion and lioness, the imagery of devouring prey and crouching down and not being moved. The praise of the brothers, the dominance over the other brothers. Added to all of this is this language of royalty, kingship, rule. When verse 10 says, look at it with me. Verse 10, 
when it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. We learn that the kings of Israel will come from Judah. And we know historically, particularly in the Old Testament, that this brings us to the great king David. But notice what verse 10 says. Notice what it goes on to say towards the end. It says this, Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So stay with me. I'm saying that, look, we've got a picture here of dominance that then goes into kingship, rule, royalty, for the, the future of this tribe, pointing towards David. But then we have this language here. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, there is disagreement over how to best render the Hebrew for this phrase. And you'll see those little notes in your Bible that bring you down to the bottom of the page. The best two options are these. What we have here in the ESV, until tribute comes to him, or this one. Until he to whom it belongs shall come. We find that, for example, in the NIV. These are really the two best options. But listen to this. Regardless Regardless of how that phrase is rendered here, notice the end result of this royal rule. The end result of this royal line from Judah. Here it is. To him, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Not just your brothers, Judah, will bow before you and they will praise you. The rest of Israel will look to your tribe for, for rulership, for, for the king. No, 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 no. All the peoples will come and bow down before this one to whom it belongs. All the peoples will come to him and obey him. This is an Old Testament passage filled with messianic expectation. And it's been taken that way for many, many, many years. A descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Listen to this. One from the tribe of Judah will have, we are told, will have universal rule over all. He will receive the obedience of the peoples, the nations of the world. Listen to how this is described elsewhere in the Bible. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 14, to him, same one, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And then hear this, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Psalm 2, verse 8, this messianic psalm in which God speaks to his Christ. His anointed king, ask of me, he says to his Christ, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Christ owns the ends of the earth. All nations bow before this Christ, this king. This is the Lord Jesus Christ of Revelation 5, 5, where he is called the lion of the tribe of of Judah, the root of David. And notice in chapter 5, verse 9, which Craig read earlier, for you were slain. This is a king who reigns from the tree. As the early church fathers would often say, Christ reigned as king, bloodied, crowned with thorns, ripped to shreds, naked, mocked. He reigned, if you will, the most glorious moment of his kingly rule there on the cross. As he bleeds as the lamb, he's the lion who is also the lamb. And it says that he was slain and by his blood he ransomed people for God. Listen to this language, universal from every tribe and language and people and nation. But, we have to keep going, but... It is not just his universal rule 
that is in view. This text is so rich. These verses are so rich. It's not just his universal rule. It is also his idyllic prosperity. Look at verses 11 and 12. Just just look at those. They describe such abundance of wine that even a donkey is tied to the choicest vine. You would never tie a donkey to the choicest vine because it would munch it all up. It would eat it up. You would tie a donkey to some unwanted hedge, some bush, not to the choicest vine. But here there's no fear. That's the imagery. There's no fear that even the best will be eaten. The best vines, the best fruit. Wine as abundant as water for washing your clothes. Of course, you're not going to wash your clothes in wine. But the imagery is that it's just flowing like water. No concern to conserve. This is extravagance at its height. Flowing wine and milk. Now, this language is strange to us in this day and time. But in that day and time, it made perfect sense. This is the way you convey prosperity. This is the way you convey superabundance. What's the point? It's simple. This king will bring us back to paradise. Do you see how all of scripture is right here in Genesis 49? This king will bring us back to Eden. One commentator, Derek Kidner, said, The scene becomes an earthly paradise, such as the prophets foretell in their messianic poems. The golden age of the coming one. That's what we're seeing here. This is what Jesus was pointing to when he turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. You ever come to John 2 and wonder what that text is about? It's not the silliness of, well, see, Jesus liked to party. What? That's not what John 2 is about. It's not the silliness of, look, Jesus liked to let loose. No. It's messianic imagery going back all the way to Genesis 49. There, he takes the water and he turns it into wine, which is an anticipation of that glorious day when he will return and the world will be remade and the wine will flow like water. That is what Jesus at the wedding is about. This blessing is found only in him, by the Spirit and unto resurrected glory. This blessing that will be for all peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation is found only in this descendant of Judah who is king and the one who returns us to paradise. Before we move on to our last point, I want you to know this. The preeminent glory of the lion of the tribe of Judah among all nations is the theme of the Bible. So if you want the key that unlocks the whole Bible, the whole Bible, every part of it, it's in Genesis 49. The preeminent glory of the lion of Judah among all nations. This is the great mission of the Bible. Matthew 28, 18. That's the reason why after he's raised and before he ascends into heaven, he says these words. Doesn't this sound a lot like what we're reading here? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That brings us all the way back to Genesis 49. Romans 1, 5. Listen to the way Paul describes his mission. We'll be here shortly. Romans 1, 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. I love this. Listen to what his apostleship and the grace he's received is for. Grace and apostleship to bring about, listen to this, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's Genesis 49, the obedience of the peoples to Christ. That's what the whole Bible is about. Finally, we come to the prosperous as we close. And I know you're thinking, wow, we still got a lot of verses left to cover. But I think we are able to go over the rest of the verses rather quickly, given what's been said so far. Look with me at verses 13 to 29 as we finish up. 
Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. The big idea of these verses is prosperity, which we have already seen ultimately comes to all peoples through Judah at the end. Here we have short little prophecies for Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Benjamin. Setting aside Joseph for just a moment, they begin with Zebulun being a haven for ships, And they end with Benjamin's might and ferocity being like a ravenous wolf. These short prophecies speak of two things. They speak of strength and success all throughout in different ways. But not without difficulty and some negativity. So, for example, Issachar will be strong. But he will choose lush land over freedom unwisely. Dan, from whom Samson comes will be stealthy and venomous in his attack, and yet he will be small. He will have to attack like a snake on the heel of a horse. Gad will raid, but he will also be raided. So what we have here is a picture of prosperity, but not without difficulty, not without negativity. These little snippets of prosperity. Here's what I want you to see as we come to the end of our passage this morning. These little snippets of prosperity reach a crescendo in the blessing that is poured out on Joseph. One commentator, Gordon Wenham, says that it is like the finale of a fireworks display. If from verses 13 to 27, you've got fireworks going off, fireworks of prosperity. When you get to Joseph, it is the grand finale. Fireworks are popping every second, multiple times a second. That is what we have at the end. Pictured as a well-watered branch that cannot be contained by its enclosure. Six times we read the word blessing in verses 25 to 26. The blessings of Joseph tower over even the blessings of previous generations. When Joseph is attacked, he will prevail. But how? How will he prevail? And this is where we must close this morning. How has he prevailed over the hostility of his brothers? How has he prevailed over the slander of Potiphar's wife? How has he prevailed over all of his trials, verse 24, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Verse 24, by the shepherd, the stone, the rock, the stable, one of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, the almighty, verse 25. This goes for all the sons, though. It is not just Joseph, the crescendo, who will experience this protection and this prosperity by the mighty hand of God. It's all of these sons 
of Jacob. And this is why Jacob, after prophesying over Dan, lets out this momentary cry for help to God. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. In the middle of his prophecy over Dan, he calls out to God, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It is God who must do it. It is God's mighty hand. He's the shepherd. He's the rock. All of this language of prosperity reminds us of three things. Finally, this morning, three things. First, it is God who upholds your way. Christian, look back over your life. All it will take is a few seconds for you to confidently affirm it is God who has upheld me with his mighty hand. And if God is the one who has upheld you with his mighty hand, and who has shepherded you, and who has given you firm ground to stand upon, will he not do so this afternoon, Christian? Will he not do so this week, this month, this year, this decade, until you die? And through death, he will be your mighty, stable Shepherd, do not look to yourself in the coming year. What will you do in your weakness? What will you do in your carnality? What will you do? You are dust. He picked up the dust of the earth and he breathed into it the breath of life. We are mere dust. And on top of that, we are depraved, sinful dust. We have nothing but God. Apart from his strength, we will fall Second, all is God's to give. Notice this. Verse 25, blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. It is all God's. That job that you need, that money that you need, that comfort, that rest, that love that you need, it is all God's to give. He's omnipotent. He can give any moment to any degree to his people. Everything we have comes from God and everything we desire can be ours from God if he so wills. And if he doesn't will, it is better that we not have it for that itself is a gift. The absence of that which we desire under God's wisdom is itself a gift from our heavenly Father. And God has given us everything in Christ. Ephesians 1 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you feel blessed this morning? Maybe not. Maybe you don't feel very blessed, whatever the reason. But faith in God's word says you are. The truth of God says you are. And not just a little blessed, not just blessed with delicacies like Asher or near the shore like Zebulun. Or maybe your feet are swift like a fawn like Naphtali. Or even what we read of Joseph, far more than any of them, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ right now. We don't have to wait right now. We have all of that in Christ. Third, and finally, this earthly ideal is coming. We are not only talking about spiritual realities. When we talk about God's redemptive plan, we are talking about a renewal of everything. This earthly ideal Spoken about with Judah, spoken about with Joseph reaching its crescendo with Joseph. This earthly ideal is coming. Listen to this. The words of Genesis 49, which we've gone through this morning. These words shoot through history with an arrow pointed to Christ's return and ultimately to the new heavens and the new earth. They are headed that way. It will come. And forever we will dwell with the Lord in perfect light, perfect righteousness, perfect prosperity.
praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for our story, God. We are the descendants of Abraham by faith. Thank you for Father Abraham, Father Isaac, and Father Jacob. Thank you for the 12 sons, for Judah, for David, and for the Christ who makes all your blessings yes and all your promises yes and all that we desire yes. He is, he himself is the desire of the nations. So we come and we say, give us this Christ. May we be found in him. Remember us, Lord Jesus, when you come into your kingdom. Remember us when you return. Remember us in the hour of our death. Faithful, compassionate, merciful Savior. You, to whom all of Scripture points, you are the King. And you bring us back to perfect paradise by your blood. We worship you. Amen.